My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Before I start, I have to say happy Pi Day to everybody. Do you know what that means? Pi? Do we have any math people in here? All right. The circumference of a circle multiplied by pi. No, the diameter of a circle multiplied by pi equals the circumference, right? And pi is that Greek designation for that number, 3.14, whatever, whatever, whatever. It goes on infinitely. Um, And did you know that our gospel reading for today started at John 3.14? I have no idea what that means. I don't think it means anything, but I just thought, wow, okay. Let's play a little uh, name that movie game this morning. I give you a a phrase, and you tell me what movie it comes from. I'm only going to do this once, all right? Here's the phrase. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? (laughs) Actually, any Indiana Jones movie. Not just Temple of Doom, but any. Um, This last week, they've been running the Indiana Jones movies on cable TV. I can't remember what channel, TNT or whatever it was. So I've been immersing myself in 40-year-old movies this last week. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 1980s cinema at its finest. And in those movies, Harrison Ford plays this archaeologist who always, um, his name is Indiana Jones, who always happens to be on some fantastical quest for some incredible archaeological treasure. And it's often tied in with the biblical story. I don't know if you've noticed that in the movies. Um, Searching for the Ark of the Covenant in that first movie that once held the Ten Commandments that Israel would use to go into battle with. And they were always given the victory. And he was searching for the Ark of the Covenant to keep it out of the hands of the Nazis. Remember in that movie? Then there was the one where he was on the search for the Holy Grail from which Jesus was reported to have drank during his last supper with his disciples, looking for that grail, trying to keep it out of the hands of who? You guessed it, the Nazis, right? All of these movies were set during World War II, hence the Nazis as the antagonists. But because the movies take so much of their storyline from biblical themes, it's really no surprise then that the hero's main phobia is snakes. I don't know if you've ever thought about this much. Whenever he finds himself in gravest danger, it's almost always facing down some poisonous serpents. And any cursory reading of Scripture quickly reveals why, right? As found in Scripture, snakes are almost always symbols of evil, are they not? Go back to the original story, you know, in the book of Genesis. It was the serpent that schnookered Eve into, and Adam, by the way, into eating that forbidden fruit. The personification of evil at the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, is depicted as the serpent in Revelation 12 and 20. And then we've got this strange story from the Old Testament book of Numbers, which you heard from this morning. God sends into the Israelite camp poisonous serpents. Lots of folks were bitten. Lots of folks died. Why would God do something like that? Just what in the world is going on in that story? Well, maybe some context would help, right? This wandering bunch of former slaves had just been given victory over the king of Arad, 
by Israel. That's what happened immediately before our story this morning. So they just had a magnificent victory. And they had not long before that been set free from over 400 years of a legacy of slavery under the pharaohs of Egypt. But instead of looking forward and being thankful for what they had, they decided to look back and dwell on what they did not have. And they complained. They complained, why have you brought us out of Egypt, out into this wilderness to die? There's no bread. We hate, there's no water. We hate this miserable food. Remember the manna that God provided for them? So then enter the snakes as a symbol of God's judgment in the story. Well, what interests me here in the story is the role that the snakes play. And here's the question. Are the serpents indeed just merely an instrument of God's retribution? Or do they stand for something more, deeper in this story? Well, what's the story about? I'm really convinced that it has to do with broken covenant. Remember the covenant? God's people broke covenant with God and end up suffering the consequences. You remember that covenant that God made with these people, right? According to the biblical story, the covenant, the agreement was first made with their ancestor Abraham hundreds of years before. A piece of whose story we heard from just a couple weeks ago in worship, if you remember. The heart of that covenant was this. I will be God for you, and you then will be my people. I will do for you. I will lift you. I will uphold you. I will set you free. I will give you life. All I ask in return is your trust, that you will let me be God for you. This covenant, this relationship between God and God's people is based solely on trust, that God is going to be as good as His Word. But what happens when trust is broken? The relationship fails. The grumbling about the food and the water, wondering about their fate out there in the wilderness, those were all signs of their unwillingness to trust in God's promised future. The snake bites and the ensuing death then, rather than simply being punishment, are more, in my mind, almost like visible signs of the death already accomplished in these folks, in their loss of faith in God, the same God who brought them out of slavery, the same God who had given them everything, life, freedom. When trust and faith are gone from a relationship, what's left? Really? Think about this for a second. When faith and trust are gone from a marriage, you really don't need a judge to tell you that it's over. When faith and trust are gone from a community, when that community is marked instead by suspicion of one another and locked doors, the wrath of God doesn't need to rain down from the sky. The results of the broken relationship are already evident in that community as people separate themselves one from another. When faith and trust are non-existent between nations, is it really any wonder that we experience warfare? In light of what this little story reveals about unfaith and broken trust, I think we could easily say that the human condition that we oftentimes refer to as original sin is indeed the same thing as being snake bit. Snake bit. 
by our own untrusting nature and rebellious attitude towards a God who wants nothing more than to love us into a better future. My snake-bit condition manifests itself constantly as I refuse to put myself and my life into God's hands. When I manage ten moments of complaint for every one moment of thanksgiving, that's being snake-bit. But even more than that, I think what the complaints reveal is an issue of, of orientation here. The people's vision. Is their vision oriented forward toward whatever future God wants to lead them? Or is their orientation directed backward toward a past that maybe while glorious in memory is still a dead end because it's gone. It's back there. I once heard a bishop drop a truth bomb by saying that every congregation that that bishop's ever known has had what he would call a back-to-Egypt committee. I'll say it again. <laughs> every congregation he's ever known has had a back-to-Egypt committee. It's not in the bylaws of their constitution or anything like that. It's not an official committee, but it exists. And most of us take our turns on it at one point or another, Right? There's always a contingent of the faithful who would want nothing more than to go back there, to the way it was, the way it used to be, imagining that the way it was has got to be better than the chaotic present or the uncertain future into which they're being led. I've been ruminating on that a whole bunch lately, particularly in light of this liminal time that we're living in right now. Sure, a pandemic has uh, kicked us out of so much of what was and forcing us into a wilderness time of wondering, trying to discern where God might be leading us next. But the changes that have been exacerbated, not only in the church, but in the whole culture over the last 12 months, those changes have been coming for a long time. For the last 40 years, since Indiana Jones first popped up on a movie screen, even before that, And it can feel sometimes as though we're being dragged. I know I feel it. Kicking and screaming through a wilderness toward a destination that we can't see or even begin to imagine. And just as the Israelites, quote, grew impatient on the way, unquote, so do I. So do we. It gets really tempting. And I use that word on purpose understanding that the serpent first appears in Scripture as the tempter, it gets tempting to imagine that God's abandoned us to our own devices out here in the wilderness and we're left without direction then. So we look back from whence we came, thinking that that might be our best bet. So, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if Moses lifting up that bronze serpent on a pole and directing his people to look at it has a lot less to do with some kind of magic that is held therein in that symbol and a lot more to do with who's holding it and where they now have to orient their gaze. Moses is holding it, right? And Moses is presumably at the head of their column. If they're going to live... They now have to look forward and upward to where they're being led, not backward from whence they've come, 
That might seem like a pretty small detail, but maybe it ain't so small. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all those who believe in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever trusts, whoever follows. He speaks those words to Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel's faith, and trying to explain to Nicodemus who the Messiah is. And I'm sure that Jesus knew that Nicodemus knew that story of Moses in the wilderness. I think it's a fascinating and powerful image he gives this teacher of the law. It's tempting, there's that word again, <laughs> it's tempting to think that Jesus is simply giving here a prediction of his death, you know, being lifted up on a cross. But I think it's a lot more than that. It's about being lifted up in his resurrection. And finally, it's about being lifted up in his ascension. Jesus becomes what the author of the letter to the Hebrews calls the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. A signpost at the head of the column of all of us making our way through this uncertain wilderness, showing us how to do it, reconciling us to God. So maybe we can begin that work of reconciling to one another, all people, all races, all parties, all nations, everyone. Who would take the tempter's venom, this poison of complaint and distrust and unfaithfulness that's born of impatience? Who would take that venom out of us and into himself? Who would give us back our life at the expense of his own? Only the Son of God would do this. Now, what will we do with this new lease on life? Continue to live snake-bit lives of worry, thinking ourselves abandoned out here in the wilderness as we wonder about our future? How could we do that? How dare we do that? No. No, we will orient our vision forward and upward. We will place ourselves in God's good hand. We as individual believers and we as a congregation will live out of an attitude of thankfulness, worthy of the cross of Jesus and of his resurrection. After all, God has loved us this much, so much. On that we can depend, on that we can trust, and that we will follow. Amen.